This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I loved how you entitled this segment, Mm -hmm. State of the Nation, as... Well, who better to tell us the state of the nation than you, my friend? Mm-hmm. We're talking about Canadian debt levels, which in and of itself is a bit scary. So I'm glad you're you're here to sort of uh, parade us through it all. So. Yeah, I thought kind of good, good timing. You know, we often do a monthly client wrap up. And I thought, well, this year there's a lot of research that's out right now about Canadian debt levels, um, some specific things about millennials that we'll talk about. And then also my professional association of trustees, they come out with some predictions for 2019. So I thought this can be kind of a topical um, current events type of a segment. Cool. And everybody everybody knows something about it because mm-hmm. you most of us have credit cards or know people who have credit cards if that's like the minimum. Um, but consumer debt, especially at this time uh, of the uh, of the end of the year when we're, you know, getting ready for the big mm-hmm. holiday season, etc. Yeah, and you know, in a headline level consumer debt, it's big. It keeps going up and it keeps get, getting bigger. So, Oof. you know, as of October of this year, um, total Canadian consumer debt and this is outside of mortgages, outside of car loans and things things like that, it reached a high of $1.86 trillion. So it's just so big numbers, you almost can't comprehend it. And but that's just Canadian That's dollars. just Canadian. Oh, so yeah, obviously in the US, it's a you know factor of 10 or, or something Ugh. similar to that. But what's interesting to me is it's up 5.4% from a year ago and 2% just from three months ago. So if you think about your wages, you know, Elaine, has the average person gotten a 5% raise in the last year? I Absolutely don't think not. so. They're definitely not making 2% more than a few months ago. Right. So again, that whole balance balance of income versus ability to service debt, um, it seems like it's going further and further out of whack. Now, on a, the, uh, you also talk about here the delinquency rates. And can mm-hmm. you explain, first of all, what a delinquency rate is? Yeah, so delinquency rate is measured as when you're more than 90 days out of, um, basically out of step with what you should be doing on your obligation. So if you've missed more than three payments, essentially three payments, three months, 90 days, you're delinquent on your accounts. Okay. And this is often a measure that, um, you know, the credit rating bureaus, they'll put out, out all their stats and they'll say, yeah, things are worse and worse. And, you know, there's more more debt for people, but don't worry because delinquencies are still really low. And that's exactly what came out in October as well. So Equifax, which is one of the big credit rating agencies, um, they said the delinquency rate is still really low and it's down about 3% since last year with just 1.1% of borrowers being more than 90 days delinquent. Okay, when I first read that, I thought, Yahoo, that's great news. That's mm-hmm. terrific news. But it's really not. Yeah, because essentially what a lot of people that I see uh, are doing is just using credit to pay credit. They're making one minimum payment by taking car- cash from another one. They're using credit for the living expenses. So it doesn't take a whole lot to not be delinquent. You just have to make those minimum payments. But we all know if you're stuck in a minimum payment cycle, even $6,000 a debt can be 30 or 40 years of those minimum payments. So just not being delinquent, that doesn't mean that you're still doing okay. Right. And that's really important to know because we'll see a headline that will, will, they will talk about that. And you think, oh, like I did when I first read, I thought, oh, that's a good thing. But no, it's not because mm-hmm. we're not, we're not dealing with the debt itself. We're just sort of 
Well, like maintaining it. Yeah, you're just kicking the can down the road, so right. to speak, and eventually you'll have to deal with it. So I expect those delinquency rates will rise. Um, but as of now, they are staying low because it seems that people are still able to get enough extra credit. Um, and, you know, sometimes people go down the cycle if they can't get a credit card, so they use a payday loan for a period of time or some other high interest financing. None of that shows up on a delinquency rate. Got it. So why is debt increasing so much? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. And probably the number one one has to really come down to interest rates. And, you know, interest Interest rates are rising, we all know, over the last couple of years, and that's leading with people leaving people with less disposable income, which often means that they're not able to pay off their credit card bill in full. So if you've got less dollars coming coming in the door, for example, because other costs are higher, um, then you're not able to always clear your debt, which means obviously your debt levels go up. Uh, what's also coming to this is that economic growth seems to be slowing. Um, so there could be an impact on employment rates. You know, if people go into debt pretty significantly when their income is interrupted, they have to take some time off or if they're downsized, which unfortunately is happening more and more. Got it. And of all the groups that we talk about, who is feeling this the most right now? Yeah, it's not a happy story, Elaine. It's actually senior citizens. Um, they've seen the highest rise in delinquency rates. And again, to me, this is kind of the leading indicator that there's going to be you know bigger problems later is when you see delinquency rates rise. Um, and senior citizens, they've went up by 4% year over year. So basically four times as high as the general population. Okay. Um, now you talked about that we're going to talk about millennials, mm-hmm. and I, let, let's do that here. Yeah. Um, so millennials are what? Are they well, even aware of the economy, or they seem to be doing a better job with credit, which really surprised me. So um, ten years ago, the average credit score for young adults, age eighteen to twenty-four, it was six eighty-one, and you know anywhere from six hundred to eight hundred is where you're starting to get you know good credit. You generally would want it a little bit higher than six sixty or so, but so the average average credit score 10 years ago for that age group was 681, uh, well, today it's 692. Okay, so Yahoo, it's just like the delinquency rate. It looks like it's all good news. Well, and it's interesting too, is that's the only demographic where the credit score has actually went up. Every single other demographic, it's actually declined. Which is the which is the bad thing, right? When you're when the credit when your credit rating is low, mm-hmm. that means you you don't have a great you don't have great access to credit. That's right. right. It usually means if you're going to get credit, you're going to be paying a higher cost for it. You might not be able to access it at all, and usually it means that hey, you've started to miss some payments, or you're overextended, or you're using too much of your credit, for example. Um, so I think what we've seen with millennials is this is a factor of they're just starting to get credit earlier in life. Um, you know, people as young as 18 on a university campus, for example, they're getting those first credit cards even more quickly than they were before. And usually for your first few years of credit use, you're very careful. You know, you don't miss any payments, you don't charge over your limit, um, all of these different things. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's a case that millennials are just starting to get into the credit game a little bit more quickly. And they seem to have bought into the idea that this credit rating is something that you need to, pre- you need to preserve. You need to try to make sure you've got great credit at all stages in your life. Well, who who sets the credit? Like, who? How is it good news? A credit, good credit rating. Like, who 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 sets it? Who mm-hmm. tells us that? What does it actually mean? Yeah, and, that, and those are good questions. You know, who tells you the credit's great? Well, it's basically it's implicit in all of your financial transactions is that people are going to pull a credit report. But this idea that, you know, we want to have perfect credit all the time, I think it's because we don't have that many indicators for us to consider on an individual basis. Are we doing well or not? So we hold on to the one that's easily accessible, which is our credit rating. But our credit rating doesn't measure anything about are we saving money? Are we actually financially smart with our money? Are we living within our means each month? All it measures is are you paying your bills? 
bills as you're supposed to? Are you making your minimum payments? Are you not overextending by going over your limit? Um, and are you not going delinquent? But there's a whole lot of other factors that can really impact, um, you know, whether you're actually financially successful or not. So I think the message to millennials is, you know, credit rating is important, uh, but make sure you're considering your overall financial health because every other demographic has seen that credit rating decline in 10 years and millennials haven't. So sometimes that means that maybe there's too much of a fixation on this target at the expense of other things. Got it. And I think this is a really important point. It just stuck out when I was re- getting ready for this segment. Um, the credit rating is just a measure of how profitable mm-hmm. you are for the banks. Yeah, that's how it was originally developed. It was a customer profitability measure, and then they started to just use that more and more. So it was never intended to be something that individually we'd you know, evaluate our financial solvency and financial strength on. Um, but you know, now it's being used more and more for other purposes. Got it. Um, I, I like the idea that the millennials are more optimistic about their financial future. Mm-hmm. I think that's a I think that's a positive thing. Yeah, I would say so for sure. And and sometimes I wonder, especially being in the lower mainland, you know, where the optimism comes from because all we hear is you know the doom and gloom of house prices and wages and things like that. But nationally. Um, Millennials, which are age 18 to 34, um, they're significantly more optimistic about their financial future. 82% are optimistic compared to about 73% of the general population. So that's a pretty big difference there that they believe in their early income earning years that they will be able to be financially successful in the future. Why are they so optimistic? I think it's a bit of a lack of experience. <laughs> to, to, it must be, to, right? To be frank, they yeah. don't have a clue <laughs> yeah, what's and, ahead. And one of our future segments, Elaine, I've got some research where we actually went to campus and we asked people, you know, well, what do you expect to make after graduation? You know, what do you think your salary is going to be six months from now, from graduation, a year or five years? In almost every case, people expected to step into, you know, the top 5% of income earners within six to 12 months of graduation. And we know, you know, the average wage in, in Canada is between thirty dollars and $40,000 a year. There were no graduates that thought they were going to do that poorly. So I think there's a big sense of optimism um, that is going to be tamped down when people find that, yeah, the world is is a little less forgiving than we would like it to be. Yeah, I think it's naivety, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it must be. And God bless millennials, right? I mean, nothing bad. But I think there's so many things about how millennials grow up and the the ideals that they get handed down or handed to them based on how they're treated, et cetera, et cetera. They just think life's awesome, and it is, but man, it's... uh, you know, it's also rough. Get a helmet. Yeah, well, financially, it can wear you down. And then the research shows that because another couple stats that I pulled together um, is, you know, the age 45 to 54. So this should be prime income earning years, you know, getting ready for retirement. A full 27% of Canadians said they're not able to save money on a monthly basis. So think about that. They're living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, not able to put money away, and they know they're not going to be able to earn income for, you know, not the rest of their life, but maybe they've got about 20 years of income earning left, and they can't save money. That's not good. Um, And even forgetting about age ranges, a full 35% of Canadians say that they can just cover their expenses. Um, So a lot of folks are really stretched these days, and that's why I think the millennials' optimism, I hope it carries through and it continues, but looking at older demographics, they're a lot less optimistic. Yeah, and millennials for the most part, I mean, I'm sure there are some, but, you know, not having, they don't have children yet. They're not married yet. They don't have children yet. And those kinds of things are the things that really tax parents. And when I look at the next age group, 25, 34, well, that's when, uh, that's where they're having children. And so, of course, they're not as optimistic because life's a bit harder at that point. There's a lot going on mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. And that demographic specifically, Elaine, the 25 to 34, and this was kind of a depressing thing during my research here, um, but, you know, they believe that they're standard of living is worse than their parents experienced at the same age. 
So, you know, we're always used to thinking, okay, you know, kids are going to do better and grandkids and so on and so forth. But this might be the first generation where we think, you know, actually our parents had it a little bit easier when they were 25 to 34. They could afford a house. They didn't have to, you know, earn the top 1% of income to be able to get into the real estate market. Well, so that's true. that demographic is really feeling like, wow, we're getting a bit of a bum deal compared to the generation that came before us. Well, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way, but I guess it all depends on where you fit into the uh, into the generation scale that you would think your parents were better off. And and I don't know if that's always true because not everybody's going to tell you everything that's that went wrong or didn't yeah. go well for them either, right? <laughs> that's right. Like, you remember the, the good things, not ex- the bad. Exactly. Yeah. Parents aren't going to do that. So what do millennials need to consider, do you think? Well, I think it's, it's a case of, you know, you've got to start saving almost from your first paycheck if you really want to achieve these financial goals and maintain your optimism. So, you know, it's the tried and true for a good reason, you know, to pay yourself first and put money aside and be very careful about credit as you go forward. It's all too easy to just fall into a trap of taking all the credit offers and making the minimum payments and not saving money and not building wealth. So I think millennials need to be very focused on what can you save, not what credit rating do you have. So if you're feeling a bit under the debt crunch and you want more information about how Blair Manton and Sands and Associates might be able to give you a bit of a hand or a help, uh, go to their website. It's terrific. It's sands-trustee.com. It's just filled with really good information, lots of questions and answers for you. Or if you'd like to call and get that free consultation, you can do that easily. The number is 1-800-661-3030, and, uh, as well as to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment we've called, or you've called, Blair, when bankruptcy is better than debt consolidation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of a scary title. Because the, the obvious... Or, or is it human nature or just how we're programmed? Uh, I would think that uh, debt consolidation would be better than bankruptcy, like bar none, any circumstances. That's mm-hmm. what I would choose to do. But your position is, eh, you really have to weigh out everything. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's situation is different and not one size fits all. And in most cases, you know, bankruptcy or in every case, bankruptcy is your last resort. It's what you do when nothing else works. But there are some situations where, you know, people really hold out hope that if I can only consolidate my debt, if I can do this debt consolidation, that's the solution to my problems. Uh, but quite often, debt consolidation, it's either not accessible or it's not actually going to solve the problem. What you need to do is take a more drastic step of actually restructuring the debts, eliminating them and moving forward rather than just kind of shuffling things around and trying to save a bit on the interest, but you still owe the same amount of money. So I think it's a bit of a counterintuitive title today, and that's by definition or by, by design here, yes. is I wanted people to think, well, when could bankruptcy be better than debt consolidation? And there are a few situations where that does happen. Yeah. And number one is if your credit history is poor, mm-hmm. how, wh- what where does that put you on those on those two sides of the page? Well, it puts you to the point where you're probably not going to be able to consolidate your debt. So just about everybody I meet with, you know, before they come to see me, they've went to their bank and they've tried to get a consolidation loan. And the first thing your banker is going to do is going to say, okay, can I pull your credit report? Oh, sure, go ahead. And then if they look at it and they see that, you know, people have just too much debt, they're overextended, they've been missing payments, if there's anything but, you know, essentially unblemished credit, uh, it's a very quick no. Unfortunately, we're unable to consolidate 
consolidate the debt. Because if you think about it, what the bank is doing if they're giving you a consolidation loan is they're taking on the risk of everybody else you owe money to. They're going to go and pay off all of those other debts and the bank's going to take that risk. And they're not going to be willing to do that if there's blemishes on your credit or anything less than a perfect history, credit history. And probably if you had perfect credit history, you might not need the consolidation loan. So right, it, can be, pro- yeah. it can be a catch-22. You need the consolidation loan because you've started to miss payments and you can't afford it. But by the time you've missed payments and you can't afford it, your credit's already taken the ding that makes it less likely you'll be able to get the loan. And you've said here too that some people may have have an ideal credit history. Others may have low scores. And you've got an interesting fact here. Mm-hmm. 70% of people who file for personal bankruptcy acts, actually have excellent credit scores. Excellent credit, yeah. Explain that one. Yeah, that one really, I had to do a double, triple take the first time I came across that statistic. Um, and it, it's a fact. It's because most people these days, again, upwards of 70%, they don't go through this stage of being delinquent on their payments, of getting months and months of collection calls and so on and so forth. People used to do that. But now often what people do is they they just borrow all the way through. They keep mm-hmm. incurring extra debt. They keep just making a bunch of minimum payments until finally something happens. You know, either internally they realize they can't do it or externally, you know, they get sued or, you know, somebody puts a charge against their house or something like that. And then they've got to take a big step, but they skip that delinquent range. So essentially the bankruptcy comes out of the blue from a credit rating point of view because their credit's perfect, but suddenly they have to file for bankruptcy. So one point of advantage of bankruptcy is there's no credit rating, you know, basically minimum or maximum, no eligibility point of view. Bankruptcy is accessible to you, whether you've got perfect credit and just know you need the help, or if you've got very poor credit and obviously know you need the help as well. Got it. What if you um, don't have many assets or only a few assets? Where, Where do you fall in that it, in that situation? Yeah, it's a situation if you don't have many assets, it's going to be very, very difficult to get approved for this consolidation loan that we're talking about, even more so than not having a great credit rating. So you really got to have perfect credit and you've got to have some new assets that basically the bank could put a charge on to secure their borrowing. So what I mean by that, using a bunch of technical terms, is that the bank is going to go and pay off all of your debts, right? And let's say it's $20,000. What the bank would want is that $20,000 they've loaned to you, they would want some asset of yours as collateral, as security. So, you know, if you had some savings, they would love that. Now, obviously, if you had the savings, you'd probably use them to pay the debt. But, you know, they would try to put a charge on your house, for example, or on investments or on any asset that you have so that they've got better protection. And if you don't have those assets it's likely they're not going to be able to approve you for the consolidation loan. So again, all of my clients, they tend to go to the bank and try. And if it's not the credit rating, it's usually, well, your credit rating is great, but unless you've got an extra asset, you can pledge to us for security. I'm sorry, but we can't consolidate your debts. Got it. And income probably comes into play too. If your income is good or bad or Mm -hmm. certain or uncertain, that's going to put you in a particular spot. Yeah, exactly. If you're someone who's self-employed, for example, and your income can really spike up or down at various points in the year, um, then yeah, you might find it difficult to get approved for a consolidation loan. Um, And, you know, also if you've had some, you know, intermittent income, some various, you know, different jobs off or on, so on and so forth, again, all of that is going to speak into the bank's risk level of loaning you money. Um, Comparing that to a bankruptcy, um, basically, if you go into bankruptcy, your income is what it is, and you pay based on that. So in months where you earn a bunch of money, if you're in bankruptcy, you have to make a higher payment than in months where you don't earn a whole lot of money. So um, there's no income requirement for bankruptcy. Some people file bankruptcy with no income at all, uh, but there is still a minimum fee of $200 over a nine-month term of a bankruptcy if someone's going through that. Got it. And what if you're, you've said here, number four is if your budget's tapped out? 
Yeah. So what a lender is going to look at is they're going to do a detailed dive on your budget and they're going to see, you know, can you reasonably afford this consolidation loan along with all of your other expenses? And in some cases, if the debt has just gotten so severe, um, when you actually look at your budget, you'll figure out that this household is only surviving by incurring more credit each month. Right. So if a bank looks at that and sees, well, if we just took all this debt away, the household is still cash flow negative. Yeah. There, there's no way they're going to be able to advance you more debt. Um, so sometimes what this can also do is it can mask a little bit of an issue because, you know, suddenly you were cash flow negative because you had all these high minimum payments, but you got a consolidation loan and that, that those numbers came down a little bit, um, basically the payments you have to make each month. So you feel like you're much better off but you still owe the same amount of debt. You still owe whatever the principal is, and now you're paying less interest on it, but the household itself is really not that much better off. It's still severely in debt, even though on a cash flow basis, you're a little bit better on a monthly basis. And growing in some cases too, right? Like your household uh, debt could grow in that you're not making, uh, you're not not able to pay for those things that you need to pay for on a regular basis, on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you might be getting behind, being delinquent on various things. And then often, Elaine, as we know on this show, life happens, right? Exactly. No one decides when to get sick or to have a child that gets sick. No one decides they've got to take time off from work or be downsized. There's a bunch of factors that can happen um, where, yeah, even with a consolidation loan, you're still vulnerable to having to make that payment each month. So how does bankruptcy then really how, when does bankruptcy be, become the best uh, the best solution in that particular case? Uh, because what are the bankruptcy payments based on if you go into mm-hmm. bankruptcy? Yeah, so if you go into bankruptcy, it's based 100% on your monthly income. So the amount of the debt doesn't matter at all, which is completely different than a consolidation loan. You can obviously imagine if you're consolidating $20,000 versus $50,000, really big differences in payments there. Um, in a bankruptcy, it could be a million dollars of debt or $20,000 of debt. The person's going to pay the same. And the way a bankruptcy payment is calculated is each person is classified into either being low income, meaning that they're earning less than about $2,000 a month take-home pay, or not low income. And if someone files for bankruptcy and they're low income, they pay a minimum fee of $200 for the nine-month term of bankruptcy. If they're not low income, they pay a higher amount based on a percentage of their income. But in just about every situation I've seen, it's significantly less than what they were paying on their debts. So here's the thing. If this sounds like sounds like you, like if we sort of described your situation, um, you're the guy to come and talk to. And that's the cool thing about Sands and Associates mm-hmm. is they'll sit down with you for your for a free consultation and you can say, okay, here's my situation. What should I do? Debt consolidation loan or consumer proposal or bankruptcy. You're the guy. Exactly. And we haven't touched on consumer proposal at all exactly. today, but I'm yes. happy that you mentioned that, Elaine, we touch on it all the time. I wanted today really to talk about bankruptcy. Absolutely. But in many cases, if you tried to consolidate and you can't, a consumer proposal is often your next best option that allows you to avoid the bankruptcy. So not the case. These are only two things that are out there. There's a lot of options that are faced and it's all about information coming and seeing somebody. And that's when I come and see you and mm-hmm. your staff and in all the offices that you've got all over the province uh, to help me figure out my best next course of action. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Here's the website to check it out for more information, sands-trustee.com, or you can call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. We'll be back with more right after this.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. And in studio with us is Mark Fidget. Hey, Mark. So glad you could be here. Always grateful to be back, Blaine. (laughs) And Mark's a Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, has over 20 years of experience. He's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network and the driver behind this website. uh, Jot it down if you'd like, www.advancedequity.ca. He's been on the show Dollars and Cents with us before. He's also a frequent speaker on the topic of mortgage debt and personal finance. And uh, let's just start right off the bat about being a mortgage broker. It was something that was literally a brand new concept to me a number of years ago, but not like 100 years ago, but just like maybe 20 years ago or 15 years ago. I'd never heard of them before. And I guess you you come across that, that people have no idea what a mortgage broker is. And so let's talk about, first of all, what that is so people know. Yeah, great question, Elaine, and uh, one I'm sure many have. Uh, A mortgage broker is a licensed professional mortgage specialist, uh, basically with knowledge of the entire mortgage market, access to over 40 lenders, so a lot of lenders, not just your basic banks, which traditionally is what uh, people have kind of been trained to believe. Uh, They negotiate on your behalf to find the best option for you, and one of the best parts it's free. See, and that's the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. I was so shocked when my husband said, oh yeah, we're going to go with the mortgage broker. And I said, a what? And he said, <laughs> oh yeah, the, he, he's going to get us this great deal. He, he's gone to this bank and that bank and that bank. And then he played the two banks against each other. And we came up with the best uh, rate possible. And it was awesome. And I was so impressed. I had no idea that that was possible. Yeah, and, and just echoing your experience, Elaine, you know, I deal with, with clients all the time. We're talking about, you know, the next step of after they're finished with the bankruptcy or the proposal, you know, how do they move on? And almost always real estate is a goal. And I was sitting down with a young couple and talking about, you know, saving the down payment, this number of dollars per month, and that's going to get us to the 20% eventually. And then when I talked about how are you going to go and get your mortgage, they started to say, well, you know, I'll make an appointment with the bank. I'm going to sit down, you know, I know the manager there for a while. He's probably going to give me a little bit better than the posted rate. And, you know, I didn't come across the table by any means, but I said, you know, just stop, right? You know, just understand there are professionals out there that for no cost to you, you might end up with a better outcome, Mark. And that's why I'm thrilled to have you on the show today, just to explain to the listeners, here's what a mortgage broker is. It's not too good to be true. It's something, you know, Elaine, clearly you've used. I've used multiple times as well. And I've been really happy with the outcomes here. So, you know, Mark, something important to us too is obviously letting people know they're dealing with, you know, accredited professionals, certified professionals. What type of qualifications does a mortgage broker have? How does someone get into that? And what's the requirements? Right, Blair. So, Firstly, there's the educational requirements, and that's offered through a program out of the UBC, out of UBC University of British Columbia. There's the actual licensing requirement after that. So assuming you pass the course, um, you would then apply to FICOM for, for, to be licensed. And FICOM mm-hmm. is the Financial Institutions Commission. They oversee all the financial institutions, credit unions, pension funds. And uh, like I say, needless to say, it's a highly regulated uh, industry, mm-hmm. probably similar to the industry probably. you're in. Yeah. <laughs> Lots so, of red tape. <laughs> so no one can call themselves a mortgage broker unless they went through these types of things. If you're dealing with somebody that's accredited, you know. You've Correct. got regulatory body, dispute resolution, all that stuff. 100%. Right? Good stuff. So we touched on a little bit about the advantages of working with a with a mortgage broker. I know that you, I mean, mine was really simple. I th- consider that my experience was pretty simple with it. But I know that there's many more advantages to working with a mortgage broker. Correct. And I, and I think, you know, you touched on going back in time. Mortgage brokers have been around for a long time. And historically, many people believed you only went to a mortgage broker if you had 
credit issues mm-hmm. or you couldn't qualify for a mortgage. Okay. Oh, so if the and bank says, no, this is your second bet, that was where it started. 100%. Didn't oh, it? interesting. Okay. And, you know, mortgage brokers can absolutely help you with that. But there's a whole much, there's a whole lot more to it. And then as time went on, it was more about, like you said, your husband said, oh, you can get us a, a great rate. And that was kind of where it kind of stuck, where go to a mortgage broker for the best rate. But there's absolutely so much more to that. Um, more recently, you'll find that a mortgage broker has access to, like I said, to over 40, 40 lenders. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're not just getting the one product. If you go to the bank, you're traditionally dealing with an unlicensed uh, person who's selling a lot of things. They're, you know, mm-hmm. they're checking account, savings yeah. account, RSPs, right. and so on. A mortgage broker works for you, has access to over 40 lenders. Wow. And, and Blair, we talked a little bit about monoline lenders. This is a big benefit to uh, the clients who work with mortgage brokers. Monoline lenders are just like the title. It's a, it's a lender that only deals in the mortgage industry. So it might be someone you've never heard of. Correct. And traditionally, most don't even know what a monoline lender is. But mm-hmm. if you went to a lot of people that have dealt with mortgage brokers, you're going to find that their mortgage has been put with a monoline lender because not only have they had the best rate, but they've had the best prepayment privileges. They've got uh, best better transfer transfer in, porting, things like that. So there's a, a lot of benefits to a monoline uh, lender, which, like I said, is only available through a mortgage broker. And just pausing there, Mark, so you couldn't access, an individual consumer couldn't access these lenders unless they were working through a broker, is that correct? Correct. Wow. So it actually opens up a lot more of the market than an individual would have access to otherwise. Yeah, and like Elaine said, most people believe it's just the bank, that's their only option. So, you know, if if there's other products out there, you're not going to be, if you go to a Scotia Bank or a TD Bank, they're going to be selling what that bank offers. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be telling, well, geez, there's a better deal over here, there's a better deal over there. That's what the mortgage broker does for you. Yeah. And, and something you said that, that kind of hit me as well, Mark, is you were saying the person that might be selling you the mortgage in the bank might not be a mortgage specialist. They might not be heavily trained. If you put them toe-to-toe against a mortgage broker, there'd be a difference. Would you, would you well, say so? I would say 100%. Hmm. And, you know, you don't, no one tells you that. And right. if you don't know what a mortgage broker does, you're going to a bank to get a mortgage thinking that's the best option for you. But, you know, we talked about this earlier. There's there's so many things to a mortgage. There's prepayment privileges. There's prepayment penalties, interest rate differential, collateral charges, rental addbacks, open, closed, fixed versus variable. Hmm, there's a bunch I mean, of those terms that, yeah, I think yeah, I mean, people start to glaze over. What they are or, <laughs> exactly. or what's the benefit? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to not only explain those things to me, but you're also going to help me figure out the the best institution that's going to provide those things the best way or the easiest for me to understand or or utilize, I guess? Correct, Elaine. And then we're we're with you the whole way. Right. We're not just, you know, getting into a mortgage and then see you later. We're, we're with you on renewal. We're with you with the whole process. Hmm. So cool. you've got some clients, Mark, you've helped them with multiple mortgages, I assume, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And one of the comments I always get, Elaine, like you said, is, geez, I wish I'd done this before. I, I, I wish I knew about this before. So it's a, it's a challenge letting people know what, what does a mortgage broker do? What's the benefit for you? Hmm. And Mark, just one of the points that, that you made there about a standard charge versus a collateral charge. First off, can you just give our listeners just a quick 30-second definition of what that is? And then is that something important to consider? Well, it, a lot of banks will tell you that a collateral charge is a benefit to you. And what a collateral charge is, if you go to, say, purchase a property for a million dollars and you need a mortgage for 500000 
the bank may say, listen, let's let's do a collateral charge. Let's put a charge on your property for, say, 900000 or a million dollars, even though you're just getting the five hundred, mm-hmm. but it's a benefit in the, in the future for you because if you ever want more money, it's already done, it's registered. But what they fail to tell you is, firstly, nothing happens for free. You don't just get more money. You have to qualify it, firstly. And secondly, it takes away the opportunity to shop for a better rate in the future because you can't transfer or port a collateral charge mortgage for free. Oh, so it locks you in. It locks you in, and they okay. know that. And they, but, hmm. you know, they're selling the benefits. So one of the, like okay. I said, one of the benefits of a, a monoline lender is they aren't collateral charge mortgages. Interesting. And then uh, just to add to it is the fact that we only pull one credit bureau, and we can use that credit bureau at all these institutions to find the best rate for you. Whereas if you were to shop, say, at three banks, you walk mm-hmm. in there, you fill out an application, you've given the bank authorization to access your credit. And as you know, Blair, yeah. um, credit inquiries factor in your credit score and your credit goes down. Oh yeah, it could knock you down, you know, 30 to 50 points if there's multiple inquiries. And it's funny, Mark, because I tell people if they're shopping for a car to do exactly that, print out their credit, show it to them, and only when you're making the deal, allow them to check your credit. But a broker does all that for you. You do it once and then they shop it around. Yeah, and, and it's just exactly what you're saying. You're telling the client how to do it. Mm. Whereas this is like someone trying to do what you do by themselves. It's, yeah. They don't know this and the bank's not going to tell them, listen, we're pulling your credit. Usually it's just your sign here on the application and in small, tiny print, almost illegible, <laughs> is an authorization form saying, you know, we're going to pull your credit. Right. Okay, but Mark, you're a smart guy. And how is it advantageous to you as a mortgage broker to just pull one credit? Bureau, or you know, go to one place for my my credit history. So it's not so much that it's an advantage for me; it's an advantage for you. I understand that, but doesn't that put you in a bit of a precarious situation? Like you may not know everything you need to know about me before you negotiate. Like, how do you look after yourself? How do you protect yourself? So are you saying if you come to me and I haven't looked at your credit? Yeah, you haven't gone further enough, or I haven't told you everything, or whoever you went to to check it out doesn't have, you know, all the bad news, uh, just maybe some of the good news. Or, or am I just being... Yeah, so I usually have all that. So if you're filling out an application with me, Got it. I'm pulling your credit, I know exactly what I'm dealing with, and then I can use that. What I'm saying is if I go to different institutions, I don't have to pull another credit bureau. Got it. So it's one credit bureau we use we use anywhere right. versus if you were to do it by yourself and go to say three different institutions, they're going to each need to pull a credit bureau on you. You can't take the one you used at Scotiabank and walk into TD. You can tell them your situation, but they're going to want to pull your credit bureau. Got it. Okay. I got it. I understand now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Lane, I feel like we could talk about this topic for a long time, Mark, and there's so many positive things to, to share about, I think, working with a mortgage broker. We're down to our last couple minutes, Mark, and I'm wondering, what do you think is most relevant for our listeners to talk about? Maybe considerations of somebody is self-employed, or should we talk about impact of kind of new rules and what you're seeing? I know well, self-employed people can sometimes have a tough time. Self-employed people are probably one of the biggest industries that's been hit with all the changes, um, mostly in the way they look at income. Because as you know, Blair, being self-employed, you're you know smart business, hire an accountant, you know try to write off as much as you can, pay the least amount of taxes. But when you're turning around to apply for a mortgage, that's going to bite you. So one of the things we do is how we look at the financials, how we look at retained earnings, different places we know that work better with, uh, you know, with self-employed people. And then uh, additionally, I think when you talked about the stress test, or you didn't say the stress test, but one of the changes that's taken place is a stress test, which has definitely bought in a 
taken a bite out of people's ability to buy, how much they mm-hmm. qualify for, their ability to refinance, their ability to transfer mortgages. So, you know, a lot's changed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. If, you, if, if you're in this situation where you're thinking about, okay, we want to make a change, maybe remortgage the house or get a new mortgage, go see Mark. Uh, his name's Mark Fidget. Uh, he's Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, has over 20 years of experience, as you've, as you've heard, and easy to access. Uh, he's a member of the Verico uh, Mortgage Network, and you can access him through uh, www.advancedequity.ca, right? I can get a hold of you through them. That's correct, Elaine. Awesome. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, that Mark's been on Dollars and Cents before. And Mark, we're just so happy that you were able to be with us. Grateful for having you having me back. Thanks. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. With us in studio, Fred Schneider, oh boy, from Mackey Research. So nice to have you again. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. We love, we love having you. Well-known <laughs> broadcaster, been in the investment business for, well, I don't know, 50 years? Over 50 years? Now you're... Dating me. Yes, not. <laughs> Are we dating? Are we dating already? <laughs> Since last century, we'll say. <laughs> yes, there you go. Oh, that doesn't sound old at all. Nice. Way to go, Blair. Um, anyway, so happy to have you here on Dollars and Cents. Thanks, um, the, the topic for this segment, why do some people succeed financially and others fail? It sounds like a magic. If we, could, if, if we only knew the answer, absolutely, we'd, be, uh, we'd, have, we'd make millions. I think the answer is simple. Do you? It really is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's called motivation. People are... If you want to enough, mm. you will do whatever is necessary to succeed at almost anything. And the key word is enough. If enough. you want to enough. Napoleon Hill in his book, Think and Grow mm-hmm. Rich, says that anything, anything that you can vividly imagine, ardently desire, enthusiastically act upon, believe you can, will inevitably come to pass. And I believe that's true. Yeah, mm. I do too, actually. Napoleon and so from a Hill. financial point of view, it's you've really got to want to have financial success. You've got to be, want to take control of it rather than just, you know, kind of... Um, flitter along and just kind of go go with the flow. Is that, Blair, that the it's, case, it's right? It's as simple. It's as simple as not spending everything you earn. Right. If you spend less than you earn, you automatically accumulate wealth. That's the whole pay yourself you first. Long 10%, enough, if yeah. you do it long enough, it's going to add up. Yeah. Even so, if it's only sitting in a bank account, it'll still add up. And do you th- mm-hmm. and do you believe that that's still true? I mean, I feel like today we have so many different pressures than we had, let's say, thirty years ago or twenty years ago on us. Whether they, I like financial things or just society society pressures. I think it's more challenging today than it ever has been. Or or would you disagree? Well, you got. You got more people trying to pick your pockets. Yeah. Okay. If you think about it, you yes. got pressures from all directions, and 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 only strong motivation can overcome that. 
And so many temptations, right? I mean, yeah. there's so many things, whether it be, <laughs> I mean, I, for one thing, let's, let, let's look at what people uh, pay uh, per month for internet, mm-hmm. cell service, those Netflix, all that stuff yeah, in your home. didn't exist. Every hockey channel ago, right? in yeah. the yeah. hockey mm-hmm. universe. You know, it's hundreds of dollars. It's mm-hmm. like Chinese water. Torture that drip, 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 yes, drip. You know. right. It is okay. The, 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 look, it's it's it starts with a budget. Yes, you got to have a budget. Darn it, you have to have a budget. Mm-hmm. You said earlier, you got to pay yourself first. Right. You pay yourself first. You budget to pay everybody else. You realize that a part of everything you earn is yours to keep. It's your responsibility to make sure that that happens, and you don't spend a hundred percent of what you earn. And if life does bite you in the wallet and you get a curveball thrown at you, you fight it and you try to deal with it. Okay, that's all you can do. Hmm. You start in a small way if you like, but you start. I often, I you know, I I remember one time years ago I had a new sales representative that I was training. And he said, will you come out with me on a call tonight? I said, I'd love to. And this call was was out in Maple Ridge. It's a long drive. Mm-hmm. So we go out to Maple Ridge and we pull up and we park the car and we go in and the door's falling off the hinges and the grass is about six feet long and there's old rubber tires <laughs> and cases of beer all over the place. And, I said to him, I said, you think this guy's got any money? (laughs) And he said, I don't know. So anyway, we went in and we sat down. And they're smoking cigarettes like crazy. And I thought to myself when I'm sitting there, I know these people don't have any money to invest. But I wonder where they find the money to buy their cigarettes. And I thought to myself, you know, saving money is just like smoking. You form good habits and become their slave, and smoking is a bad habit, and you become a slave to that one too. Mm-hmm. So the opposite of that is to form good habits and become their slave. And I've never had anybody ever say to me, you know something, I've decided to take up smoking, <laughs> but I can't afford quite to do it yet. Yeah, I'm going to save gonna, up. I'm going to wait till yeah, I can yeah. afford to do it, and then I'm going to start smoking. Okay. Fair enough. And, and I've had mm. lots of people say to me, you know, I know I should be saving money, but I can't quite afford it yet, so I'm going to wait till I get a raise or the baby's born or Junior graduates from school or the car's paid off, whatever it is. That's an excuse. That's what they say. So that's there's an analogy there between that and smoking. So if you take the same attitude, hey, if you want to... How much does it cost to smoke? A lot. Don't even know. Is it over 10, 12 bucks I think a cigarette... I used to smoke, so I I don't know. But I, I think a cigarette's at least a dollar. Okay. Per cigarette. Per, per cigarette. At least, yeah. And, and that dollar is not tax deductible. So you got to earn $2, pay a dollar of tax to have a dollar left to buy the cigarette in the first place, and the darn things are going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely stupid. Yeah, there's no no winning there. I'm going to probably get a lot of angry callers, <laughs> no. callers, or smokers. Or, or yeah. Blair is one yeah, or the one other. Us, yeah. We don't yeah. judge, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's a, it's, a, it's an expensive habit for sure. And form, but mm-hmm. the, the key is you form good habits and yeah. become their slave. So you talked about paying yourself first. What kind of percentage should we pay ourselves? Well, the average Canadian, Elaine, the average Canadian saves five cents. That's not quite, almost five cents out of every dollar. That's the average savings mm. rate in Canada. 52 cents out of that same dollar goes to pay lifestyle expenses. And the rest of it is insurance and taxes. So 
So it's a 10 10 to 1 we value our lifestyle over our future, it sounds like. Hmm. Without changing the 52 cents, Mm -hmm. the lifestyle, by reducing the tax that people pay, and I can do that, and reducing the cost of the insurance that they, they spend good money on, I can show them how they can triple, how they can increase the savings to 15 cents. That's a 300% increase. So you can save 15 cents on the dollar without affecting your standard of living with good, solid, sound financial planning. Hmm. That sounds interesting. Well, you can visualize that. Visualize that pie chart. Half, almost half the pie chart standard of living. And then you have insurance and taxes. That's about 30%. And the... And the rest of it is savings. So 15% is what we should be paying ourselves? Is that your answer to my yes, question? Yes, I think so. <laughs> okay. Sorry I took the long way around. I couldn't bypass the opportunity. I know, yeah, I yeah. know. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that I got it at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. What did you get? I got 15%. You got to yeah. pay yourself 15%. Mm-hmm. Now, now, I know the clients that I work with, a lot of them aren't saving anything because they're in debt, but 15% to a lot of people probably feels like a lot. But when you think about this is for your future, this is for, you know, the, the last third of your life, probably, um, you know, you want to have a certain lifestyle that, you know, is going to be commensurate with all the hard work that you've done. If you just spend every dollar every day, you're saving nothing for the future. If you start by saving the five cents yeah. and you have it in your mind that you need to make it 15 cents, you can work towards that objective. Yeah. Start in a small way if you like, but start. Yeah. Just get on that's that a fact, path. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Get on that path. I know that that's a real uh, something that you talk mm-hmm. about a lot of is that you just need to start. Take some action. Imagine, if you will, a river. On one side of the river, you have poverty. On the other side, you've got tremendous wealth. A financial plan is the bridge between the two. Mm-hmm. Get somebody to help you figure that out. So if you don't have a financial plan, get one. Yep. If you find yourself in debt, in massive debt, and and it's out of control, it's because you don't have a plan. If you had a proper plan and you were following it, it wouldn't have happened. Well, and that's when we talk about Blair. Go see Blair and Sands and Associates because yes. they'll help you figure out how to get out of that. Get you right mm-hmm. back on the right track. Yeah, in really smart, mm-hmm. thoughtful way. Yeah, and I've had clients that have come to see Fred, and they they've come mm-hmm. to me because we got to deal with the debt first, and then yeah. they're able to you know move forward and and start to save for retire- retirement and get into those good good habits. Mm-hmm. So there can be a lot of symbiosis between a, f- a financial planner and a trustee. If any of this information is resonating with you, and you're thinking, okay, I need to take some action. I'm not too sure what kind of action to take. Whether I'm in debt or I need a financial planner, you've got two of the the best guys right here uh, talking to you. Fred Snyder from Mackey Research. Easy to get a hold of, uh, well-known broadcaster, has been in the business for a very long time, very thoughtful, smart guy. If you're in debt, you need more information, go to Sands & Associates, their website at sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, for that free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. 
All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.